My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. In this conversation, I'm speaking with Damien Norris. Damien and I met on an Evolve Move Play retreat last fall, and we were placed in a group together. We were called the Vikings and spent some time together and learned that we had much in common. Damien is completing a PhD at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver that explores the links between human movement, philosophy, embodiment, nature connection, and human wellness, individual as well as collective. In his 20s, Damien retired from a career in elite gymnastics and began working in community development and international aid, and then became a criminal and civic lawyer. But after 20 years of working a desk job, Damien became a father, and that moment shifted his attention He became driven to understand how to become more fit and reclaimed his fitness through practicing parkour in nature and urban settings. He actually has a TED talk about this that's in the show notes. And so Damien has collected all these experiences and is bringing them to bear in his studies right now. This conversation was a delight. I'm so happy to share with you my interview with Damian Norris. I'm Kim Rothwell, and this is The Return to Embodiment. Damian, I'm so happy to see you. Yes, it is. It is good to see you. And I, I'm excited. I mean, this, is, this is exciting. It's helped, helped me to pull together some, some thoughts. I watched your TED talk today. Okay. The Perth TED. Yeah, yeah. That was an experience all by itself. That was a great uh, opportunity to do it. Um, It came out of left field. It wasn't something that I pitched for. It was, uh, we were approached in Perth um, by the curators who were trying to find interesting um, discussion topics. And I don't know how they got onto us. I think it's like, someone mentioned something about the wilding project that we were doing in in Jandicott, which had just sort of started up. And that's pretty much just how it happened. And then the the process of actually getting ready for that moment is extraordinary. It's very detailed. I was very much blown away by the whole juggernaut that is Ted. Like it's a, it was a, you know, I was assigned a speech coach. We trained for three months. I had um, curators pour over my transcript who pulled things out and tested my theories and made me really think about stuff. And, you know, it was a, it was a, big, it was a big deal. That's really wonderful. You appeared so natural, <laughs> right? It felt like you were kind of just speaking really from your heart because you started talking with about your son. Mm. Um, and how your movement journey was largely inspired by the desire to be able to move with your son. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the catalyst for all of that getting going was just the fact that I was a 
ex expecting father and, and did not feel that my fitness matched um, uh, being a dad, <laughs> at least how I imagined, you know, that role to be. I was, um, yeah, I had a desk bound legal job and I was very much attached to a desk and a computer and, you know, my body was feeling that pain. It's an interesting reflection because I remember when I look back at it, everyone focuses on, appropriately on the woman, you know, her health and her trajectory and her, you know, when you go to the meetings and you go to, it's like, you know, you, no one actually kind of says to the, the dad, how are you going? Like, can I check in with your body? Like, how, is, how are you traveling, right? And so it was a, surprising to me that no one, dads, dads are very much not considered. It's almost like assumed that they're resilient enough to, you know, to do this whole thing. And, um, and, and appropriately so, that the, the attention is on the person who's going to be giving birth. But there's this big gap in that um, march towards that fateful day, that day, you know, um, that you don't get a lot of advice as a, as a, you know, expecting dad about your own fitness and your own preparation and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's, it was a big absence, I found. Yeah, because in recovery, a lot of women are not able to be really active. No. Depending on how the birth goes. And yep. so having someone who is able to carry the baby, lift things, move really is, is really essential, right? To tell yeah, totally. I mean, mom, yeah, Bridget was out for, for, you know, a few weeks and it was complicated. And um, the, and we were living in Melbourne. We didn't have, we don't have family around. So it was just me and, you know, leaning on mates if they were available. Um, but yeah, um, you do have to have your fitness in, to, in mind when you're going to be a dad, if you're, but who knows what kind of circumstance. It's really beautiful to me that that was your inspiration and continues to be part of your, um, your learning um, in terms of uh, the purpose of movement and the meaning behind movement, that it's not just looking good, although, you know, you look good, but <laughs> it's, it, it's about like, how can I, how can I serve? How can I be um, a, a functional and useful yeah. member? Yeah. Family, yeah. Or society. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, it's, I've come a long way in my thinking about movement. And I've got a long way to go, too. Like, there is, you know, I don't come with a background in physiology or biomechanics. And, you know, my background is as a sports athlete, you know. So, so it's a very personal, practical experience. And I was a coach for 15 years as well of gymnastics and so on. So, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I don't have a, I don't have a medical background per se. It's very practically geared. And so, um, although I do have a bit of a philosophical background, which has been really helpful. Um, but yeah, I've got a long way to go for sure. But my understanding of the role movement plays um, is just getting broader and deeper and um, more nuanced and, and very and, and unexpectedly so, I think. From a person who had like, you know, can, you can think of an elite gymnast as, you know, just like the jocks in football, you know, we, we don't have a social conscience as athletes. We're just machines working in the gym, right? And I had no concern about wider issues or never contemplated what the meaning of my athletic 
performance, you know, meant for my body or my future body or anything like that. You know, it's just a non, it's a non-thought. <laughs> so to be back in that space, look, looking at my own body and other people's bodies and how um, the industry talks and thinks and feels about bodies, you know, and then what philosophy has to say of it, and what embodiment has to say about it, like this match together is, I think, it's, I, I enjoy it. I think it's fascinating. Yes. So you are coming from, from all of these disparate realms. You're, you're trying to, as a lawyer, you were um, a gymnast, an elite gymnast. Um, you studied philosophy. You uh, are a father. All of these different aspects of who you are are kind of coming together to inform yeah. the study, and the work, and the expanding of the discipline that you're a part of or like the creation of the discipline really you're 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 yeah. creating words sort of to describe what you're yeah. doing i'm trying to make stuff up yeah i'm trying to make i'm trying to make up something i don't feel like i'm doing anything radically new like i'm not re like you know no one's going to remember me as someone who redefined a new philosophy or something like that but um i'm feel like i'm more pulling together these threads that appear to be um, cross-sectional but they're not actually together right now that's kind of what I feel like I'm doing I'm kind of pulling these ideas in from all sorts of dis disparate fields and making a, a kind of a, a new coherent picture yeah as as you were gesturing the people listening won't be able to see it you were pulling sort of threads into a center kind of drawing pieces yeah. together to weave something to create connections so the question is, how is embodiment to you? So I knew this one was coming and I wrote lots of notes. There's sort of two kind of ways that I think about embodiment, I guess. One is, uh, one I find it's, it's sort of like the first uh, salvo across the bow of sort of that dualist mind-body idea that we've sort of had for such a long time. For the Western academic mind to sort of return to a preferentializing or the or the you know the prioritizing of the body and the senses in in how we understand and know the world, I think that that word just sort of captures um, that first attempt to give a new sense of things around uh, critiquing that old paradigm, and then you know we have these other things that have flown out of that you know embeddedness and emergence and inactivism like all these things are just tumbling out now. Uh, in really creative and wonderful ways. I think embodiment in one sense is just the first launch pad for a rediscovery of the body and its, and it's sort of enfoldedness in, in the world, embeddedness in the world, in, a, in its cognitive and its physical functions. So I, there's that. The, the other part about it is that the, the word itself for me is pretty new. So I really only discovered it in an academic setting taking a course with Celeste Snober, who she's a wonderful dancer academic at um, SFU. And I took her course and she has lots of undergrads in this class. So I was like a bit of a fringe sort of um, person to the group. And it was a course on embodiment, but in a real, I mean, you can imagine, you know, dance therapy, dance narratives, the, dancer, the dancer's take on embodiment is very different. Um, and so I was in that world and she had this assignment for us, which she called a body graffiti, like an autobiography, but it's of the body. 
And she really was inviting us to actually speak from the perspective of our pelvis or our liver or our lungs or, you know, out of left field for me. Um, but it had me um, diving very deep personally into my uh, gymnastics background. And what emerged from me in that story was the realization that my elite athlete's body was traumatized. Like there was trauma in that practice and there was abuse in that practice. It's not, not sexual abuse or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, the, the body of a gymnast to be where it's required to be within the rules of the sport at the elite end requires the body to be put through torturous practices, right? Really hard work, you know? We, and um, looking back on that world, I was like, holy heck, I was really traumatized. There was real emotions that emerged when I kind of looked back at my, the, the treatment of my body through that period. Now I was an older gymnast really, 16, 17, when elite sport as an institutionalized setting was really coming to the fore, there were these places where you had to go to and train as elite athletes and live in community and you know, these, these hubs around the country. But I was old enough, I didn't go through my early, early years, like you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, really training hard as the elite discipline required. The kids that I would see under me growing up. I mean, they were the ones that were really affected by the institutionalized nature of elite sport in gymnastics. I mean, right now in Australia, there's a human rights commission into the, that whole thing, right? It's a real issue. Um, so my uh, um, introduction to embodiment was this very personal thing where I was blindsided by what I had in my organs, <laughs> what knowledge, what messages, what information I carried in my body that I really had not paid any attention to or, or thought about. And so my feeling now with embodiment is quite a personal one because I really have a appreciation for the way um, trauma can live in the viscera of your organs and it will appear and it'll come out of nowhere. And, and the gestation time for that information to emerge into sort of a cognitive moment can take a long time really really long time uh, and, and so and, and then on the flip side when you are experiencing things in the world in real time now I still have an appreciation for the, the capacity for things to gestate in terms of the information that's been you know consumed by the body in different time scales I, I feel like when I'm um, training with clients and so on and I'm mindful of the impact of one session on week one and it's manifestation a month from now like what do those pictures sort of look like because i really feel that the body and expressing itself and finding its limitations and, and you know engaging in, in the growing capacity that the, there's lessons in that body that don't appear straight away they come out kind of a useful example i've got one uh, young boy that i teach is an indigenous boy here and he has he has a kind of Tragic backstory, you know, father, father deceased early, very fit athletic man, now out of the picture. And then he stopped playing sport. Like that was his, his window was, was through his father. So that whole thing for him just disappeared. And he wouldn't leave the home, you know, um, he wouldn't go out and do stuff. And so 
with me and the parkour practice was something that he voluntarily asked about and then somehow somehow found me. And you can, you can see over a period of, of um, weeks of training in a physical practice that's not about therapy, it doesn't come with an agenda, I'm not asking questions, I'm not, you know, a therapist, but the, but the, but the work, the, the actual physical activity is the therapy. And, and so weeks later, there's this kind of these moments of just this young man flourishing as a, as a human, right? Out of the blue, you know, we just happened to be finishing a training session out in the woods, sitting on a large log over, a, you know, it's very picturesque, a large log over a stream. I always bring a cup of tea or something. I put the thermos out, we're having a, a tea. And, you know, there he was emerging as this um, guy telling me how comfortable he was on this log, which the height would, or, would have scared him weeks ago. Um, you know, healing himself through a physical practice, which, which came with no agenda other than let's just explore your physical capacity in the natural world. We have all these benefits that come with that if they're supposed to, you know, that kind of mentality, not pushing anything. We're not psychoanalyzing anyone, not trying to interpret your mind or, you know, do anything. We're just training the body and let you express yourself. And then this comes out, you know. And, and that's the kind of experience I have with almost all of my clients. I just find that, yeah, the, the, the movement itself is therapy. And, and normally it's sort of over in these contact improvisation things and dance therapy and sort of artistic expressions of stuff, which is cool. It's not often in the very physical sports, you know. So parkour, for example, I don't think anyone thinks parkour is therapy um, or soccer is therapy, you know. But movement, I think, is therapy. Moving the body in physical ways is therapy. And so why not? Like, why can't parkour be a, considered a kind of a therapy for the body? That was a long way of getting to embodiment, wasn't it? Sorry about that. Don't apologize. I love it. I just want to let you keep jabbering on. <laughs> um, so wow yes going back to what you said at the beginning I love that you um sort of grounded the idea of embodiment in the research and the philosophy that's out there right now that is talking about this phenomenon mm. um and then you kind of set that aside and spoke from a lived experience of embodiment that sounded like perhaps one of the first times in your life holding space for your own body's voice mm -hmm. in a way that athletes maybe aren't trained to do. Athletes are sometimes trained to ignore the body's voice because there's, there's affirmation that comes in that process of ignoring the voice of the body. Mm. But in this course, you were invited to really listen to it. Yeah, I was. And it was, a, you know, you had to pick something to do, some physical activity to do. Could Anyone could do anything. You could, you could knit a rug if you wanted to. You could ride your bike. Just to do that one thing all the time. And then at the end of every sort of session, journal, whatever it is, you know, don't, don't write and try to rub out the words. Just let, don't let the inner critic take over. Just spew it all out no matter what it looks like. 
Um, and I chose the practice of crawling because I wanted to really, I thought, well, I'll just do something that's very in my wheelhouse, like a real natural movement type thing. So I crawled. And I crawled on everything. I crawled, you know, in the living room, around the house, on the grass, across rocks, on beaches, logs, you know, in the in the forest, you know, across moss, like in water, across streams, like just animalizing everything, just being as primal as I could um, until I was sort of um, out of energy and then slump down, pull out the notebook and then just write. Like out of the blue, I wrote poetry. That's not, that's not my thing. You know, I'm not a poet. It's not great poetry. But then, I, and then this other thing started to come out. Like I was appreciative of the fact that I could do these crawling patterns because I had this background in gymnastics. It sort of lent itself to me able to pick this one up quite quickly. If you haven't crawled for a long time, you know, it's very difficult. So I was kind of appreciative of that. And then it was like that looking back into that old window, I was like, yeah, but at what cost? What was the cost of that experience? And that's when it all kind of sort of came out. And I started to have memories of the young gymnasts that I would counsel in the, in the change rooms after coming in with tears as seven, eight-year-old kids just like, hang in there, you know, you can do it. You know, that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's kind of where it, that kind of how it all bubbled up. And I learned a lot more about crawling. <laughs> I really put together some interesting stuff around just the the modality of locomotion that's crawling. So formative developmentally of the infant, right? All of those neuromuscular patterns, connections within the brain, integrating the sensory as well as the motoric in the process of crawling and feeling the earth through hands, right? Yeah. The texture of whatever space one is in. Mm -hmm. um, such a rich source of information. From my perspective as a clinician, a lot of times we move into the body and it is what's called the implicit. It's like unnamed spaces, yeah. which are closer, if we're going to move into languaging, it's much closer to poetry than it is to an explication that's going to come in a philosophy journal. It's yeah. more um, knitted to the sound of one's being yeah i mean it fits so i have this penchant for phenomenology and and i had a real penchant for the work of maurice Merleau-Ponty. i think he was really onto something and you know unfortunately passed before he gave us his <clears throat> final well his last dissertation was never really finished off but it, he seemed to be really charting out a new path for his explication of the body and um, lots of thinkers have taken that in interesting directions because it's so feckoned with possibility one because unfinished so you never know quite what Merleau-Ponty was sort of imagining but then <clears throat> there's just enough content to be enticing you know to pull to pull thinkers into this world and but in phenomenology there's, there's this idea that there is this um, original or primary moment like this of, of connection to the world of the now like there's this moment of primal connection to the sensorial world which is the body and then everything after that is a re reflection or re representation or like you're saying, the explication of that original moment. And for me, one of the assumptions that's in that phenomenological world about the primary data, getting back to the things themselves, you know, getting back to those original moments is that the assumption is that we were, that sensation, that information is amenable to words. 
that, it, that you can actually express it. And that's in the literature. There's this epistemic gap that seems to be unbridgeable between getting back to the things themselves and having the experience in the moment and then articulating with it with enough veracity for us to get the right meaning out of it, right? It's a kind of a problem of logic, maybe. It's a problem of people who have um, idea of time as causally linear, like, you know, the sequential thing. But I'm of the view these days that that primal moment is just ineffable. And poetry is probably the closest I'm going to get to exploring it. Apart from just expressing my body in a way and moving my body in a certain way that kind of maybe gives that moment some life or writing in poetry or leaving it unsaid and just trying to feel it is kind of like what I, where I am now with phenomenology. I think that there's a large problem with the literature where it assumes that we can actually get meaningful words out of that stuff. But <clears throat> let's say we can't because that, that, that problem just seems to be perennial. Well, then what next? Well, the what next for me is that now we have to just go deep into movement. We just have to move in new ways. We have to find ways that, you know, get us in touch with this original moment, primary data, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's going to be a, it's a movement focus now and we won't be so um, hubristic to think that we can, you know, language our way into understanding that stuff. We have to move our way into understanding that stuff. And maybe, maybe that's why it's such rich therapy is because it's a whole different kind of way of tackling a movement practice. I am right here with you. And I love, I love what you're saying. I did want to inquire a little bit about your influences. Um, oh, yeah. And I mentioned at the beginning that you're a lawyer and I love how you think, which is kind of in a lawyerly way a little bit, that training has informed how you um, hold the questions. Mm. But there's also in what I'm hearing you say is this admission like the the words are not enough and so the movement is where we need to work yeah. and that's what you came to toward the end of the question about embodiment when you spoke about facilitation mm -hmm. that there was this trust this faith even movement practice itself to be transformative to be yeah. healing to be uh, cultivating for this young boy more ease more confidence as i was hearing you i was thinking to myself the movement is incredibly powerful and there's also a relationship there with you who is prioritizing that movement and i don't think we can minimize the importance of that mm. right that the figures and the sources that hold space for the unfolding of the movement mm -hmm. with the quality of attention to time that you're talking about not expecting somebody to get it right away not expecting someone to be anywhere other than in this this nuanced awkward potentially like um struggle with coordination patterns and having having a person hold space for that I think is an essential part of that healing and that development right when the baby's looking for someone to to know that they're that they're held as they're doing these patterns 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, that's, <clears throat> I mean, my thinking about, so, you know, they call me a personal trainer, call me a coach, you know, um, I kind of feel more like a guide. And you're right, I hold this container of space. You know, I have to make these practical considerations around safety and stage of ability and where we might, you know, do stuff. Uh, and then I have to come up with a kind of a syllabus or a sort of gradual, you know, development of the capacities, different skills and so on. After a while, with the practical stuff is done, it's just getting out of the way. If you look out in the field and you see someone's wearing all rugged up and they've got their clothes on and they've got the whistle in their hand and then everyone else is running around doing stuff. I'm not that guy. I'm always, I'm almost always running with my clients or training with my clients. I'm never a spectator to their physical activity, which is a bit different to classical coaches because they sit on the sidelines and they point, right? There's a, in terms of the relationship, literature around what kind of happens um, therapeutically when two people walk together. You know, just walking in stride or going for a walk, we start to step into the same kind of rhythm, we pattern each other, there's a mirroring going on, and it's a very good, useful practice if you're having an argument with someone, is go for a walk, right? With the person, you know, things settle. And so training with someone else as well is a bit like leaning into that body of knowledge. If I run with you and if I experience, experience these spaces with you and we do this together, you know, there's something in that. But then I'm out of the way. We've set the course, so to speak. We've set the training program and now we're tackling this together. Um, and I'm getting out of the way and just every now and again point, making some pointers or, or, or doing that kind of thing. But you're right. We have a role to play and it it's it is, and it has to be thoughtful, and it has to be considered, and it has to be well-intentioned, you know, um, all, all manner of things, it's, which is kind of part of when I'm writing this dissertation up, I'm actually trying to think about how, what's the role of the facilitator? What's the role of the coach in this picture? What's the role of the, you know, what kind of being does that person have to be or manifest, you know, like, because I think that, that the question of how the coach turns up or, you know, how the facilitator turns up, is really critical to, to whatever happens in the room, so or in the in the forest for me. But I'm, I'm not I'm not it's not uh, concrete yet for me how it's structured and whether it's just so idiosyncratic that it's just me, and and you know everyone's going to have this interesting and unique take which will be a bit different. Yes. But to go to your question of influences, I mean I can talk a bit about what's in the background to this movement practice, if that's helpful. Yeah, what I was going to say is, um, there was also in your TED talk, something supremely accessible about what you were inviting. There was a facilitation and guiding in the TED talk itself, even though it was not a physical movement practice, it was an ushering um, people into a different way of conceiving of their own fitness such that it could become participatory within their family or their friend systems yeah. where they're not focused on lifting weights or running on a treadmill but they're engaging with the environments within which they live like I loved that you said you know you can crawl in your living room it was an invitation to 
a different way of conceiving of our own movement. As I'm talking to you, I'm conscious of the fact that you're holding both the physical movement space for transformation, but you're also holding the, a, a space for cultural shift, just like your definition of embodiment. You have the, the, the utterly personal driven by movement knowledge um, in environments that is transformative and nourishing. And then you also have this consciousness about how the way we use the language, the way we create culture around movement could transform future generations. It could transform how we relate to the environments within which we live. That's a hopeful trajectory, trajectory of human life, right? Like I'm kind of going really broad, but I, but I believe that. Yeah, I think you're right. So yeah, the whole shift for me was thinking about um, that fitness was not just ex was not exercise. That kind of paradigm where we have this exercise model of, of of being fit, you know, and exercising has these you know running, walking, running, swimming has a range of sports attached to it. But when you got really into the nitty gritty of that, if you're just a bike rider and you, you train and you're 400 kilometers a week training on bike riding, when your bone density will be lower than someone else who, who runs pavement in your legs, your, your, your flexibility atrophies as bike, bike riders, hardly any of them can touch their toes. You know, they, and they have this one circular function going on with their legs and their upper body is almost inert leaning forward over these handlebars and you know riding and they're expert at that and that and so you know 20 years ago we look at those cycles and go, oh what an athlete well yeah but you can't do anything else you know classic examples of you know massive bodybuilding physiques but they can't bend their arm, elbow to touch their own nose but this kind of craziness in specialization and when and 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 movement is a non-optional component of being a human. If you're not moving, then you're atrophy. Like this, this, this really cut and dry. And the body has leaned into its ability to move for its own benefit. All of our systems, including the health of our brain, require it to be moving. Okay, well then the question is, well, in what way? Like which would be a really good way to move your whole body through all that it is capable of and what would you choose? And on one level, I could suggest that you just walk every day and make sure you take yourself into a natural setting and sit down and be present. That could be, that could be enough for a healthy body for its whole life. But then if we are going to get into the capacities of a body, like really explore what it can do, in that exploration, do we have a kind of a, a cognitive jump <laughs> about our perception around the world? So this little thesis in my, um, my well, current thesis is a bit of a no-brainer. It's like, if I can physically stand in a different location and give myself a new perspective on the world, then what new insights might I have about the world that I see and the person that I am? And in a parkour setting, that's very concrete and practical because we run up a wall and we see the cityscape or the, the, the forest from a different angle and not only, a different angle, but I got my body to this angle. 
Like I overcame something that would might have been impossible for me, you know, a few months ago, or what is, or it's not conceivable for other people to even try it. So this idea that movement is not only extraordinarily beneficial, necessary for a healthy body for its whole life, but our choices of movement sh should be carefully considered because in the elite spectrum, we can do damage. Um, and in the current paradigm of, you know, physical education, physical activity in schools and sports is like, is this physical literacy model. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's a big deal and it's backed by a large body of work and some really great thinking in it. But if you dig into physical literacy as the movement paradigm to be considered in schools, you won't find crawling, it doesn't appear. You won't find hanging or climbing, that doesn't appear. Both of those things are extremely great for the body. You know, for shoulder health in terms of hanging and for your whole core in terms of crawling. I mean, you won't find carrying anything. No one's lifting anything around really of any substance. And then there's no sense that the body is an organism that is embedded or it requires, you know, other organisms, fresh air, trees, sunlight. You won't find that connection in physical literacy there is no connection between the body is an organism. The body is this thing that can be physically literate. <laughs> you know, and it, even that language is, I find difficult because it's about literacy and it's cognitive. You know, I understand what they're trying to get at. For me, I'm thinking about the new neuroscience now about you know, the mind makes these maps of um, patterned movement that, be, that become sedentary into our body. Like the, the sediment in our body become these habits, these habit bodies. And those habits are how we respond to things in the moment. But what if you're, you expanded the, the network of maps in your, in your neurological mind and your body as an embodied subject? Expand the range of what your body knew how to lean into, right? Suddenly the world becomes quite a playground. You know, parkour athletes call it parkour vision because I almost see a new layer across the landscape that no one else sees, but they see it. And there's really great literature around the impact on, um, you know, youth health and youth mental health and, you know, uh, recidivism and delinquent youth doing parkour programs and finding a new way of seeing the same place that was constraining with concrete and full of police and enemies and a place to be feared now having a capacity to run over it with sort of some dexterity suddenly it's not so scary anymore and now i'm an agent of my own child. like this kind of shift that happens personally and all we did was teach you how to navigate those obstacles so this movement out of kind of like this exercise and fitness model in general students have five opportunities to be physically active during a normal school day uh, these include physical education classes, recess, transport before and after school, after school activities, and some and in-class activity breaks. Now that's a really narrow set of thinking around movement. That's exercise thinking. They're moving the entire time they're active in the classroom when they sit, right? <laughs> we, there's these geometry altering shapes called shoes and chairs and you know, these all have impacts on the body's 
relationship to itself and its structure and you know its health and so on. But that's contemporary thinking around physical activity in schools. It it doesn't include the physical activity that is sedentary activity in the picture <laughs> of physical activity because it should be there. Being sedentary and stationary has a physiological impact, and they don't have to be that way. There is no reason why a classroom of young people could not do lots of movement activities around the classroom while they're doing their, their learning. Like those things don't have to be um, separated out, but they, but they are at the moment, I think, and to our detriment. It kind of goes back to that attitude towards the body of whether its voice is something to listen to or not, right? The training in those spaces very often are be still, cultivate cultivate that ability to ignore, detach, um, cover impulses for movement. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> um, it, it's inconvenient, right? <laughs> Everybody's moving. Super inconvenient for a teacher. I can only imagine, you know, like everybody just moving, listening to their impulses. <laughs> You know, handstands my daughter would be doing like <laughs> handstands in the classroom or something um however over time I wonder what that type of um restricting does to us and to our humanity if it's desensitizing us on some level to the voice of the body what does that do to the voices of others, whether it's the environment or it's other people. Um, it's, it's kind of an inquiry that I'm, that I'm having right now as I'm hearing you talk. What are, what are we teaching about the needs of bodies? Yeah, short story, not a lot. I mean, we lose our sense of play. Somewhere along the line, we grow out of play. And that doesn't have to happen. But, you know, no one's going to be walking down the street and just go and tag someone and say, you're it, and run away. Like, we don't, you're going to have a game, you know. <laughs> not going to play hide and seek in your office with your boss, you know, like, um, you know, we... But you could. You could. You're you actually could have right? a game. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead and crawl in your living room and play tag with your boss. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we have a, a, a game that we sometimes play in the house that between sort of 12 and 1, it's the crawl time. If you want to get anywhere in the house, you have to crawl to get there. It doesn't matter what you're doing, kitchen, so on. Just have to crawl around on all fours, you know. And my five-year-old loves it. He thinks it's a great gig. He's a great teacher for me, because I watch him really closely as he's developing. Maybe it's a bit selfish. It's like he's almost like a my own pet science project. But um, you know, he has to touch everything to understand it. And I was like, "What's that all about?" You know, like he can't keep his hands off stuff. And I was just then I go and read some papers and delve in. It's like you know, he's tactile because that's how. He informs his understanding. He has to touch it if he's going to think it. There's an imperative there. Exactly. Developmental and imperative to touch, to, to connect with the sensory experience of the world. Exactly. And if he's too tired to think anymore, like we're practicing our numbers or ABCs, and he can't think, he has to get up and run around and do something because he can't. It's, and at that point, it's like, well, that's game over. For the, for the learning for now, let's go play and move. Movement is another learning. So we'll go do something else that's about moving your body. And it's recuperative, and, right? If we, yeah. 
if we understood and were free, you were talking about freedom as well, right? Mm -hmm. If we were free to listen in a way that allowed us to regulate and to yeah. the needs of the body. There's adults in, in lectures and stuff, you know, you, I always love the lecturer who says, if you feel like standing up and walking around, go and do it. Like, I'm not going to stop you. No one's, but, but that's really rare. You know, that a lecturer says that. You know, we don't have lectures at the moment, but, you know, I remember that when they said that, I was like, oh, thank goodness, because otherwise I'm going to be sitting here for three hours, right? And it's like, it, it can be like that in a classroom. If someone's fidgeting around, there's a reason for the fidget, right? Um, and not necessarily a pathological one, right? We're very quick to diagnose fidgeting behavior. And, but I can just see as plain as the nose on my face, and I, but I'm not a teacher, is that, you know, if Remy's not moving um, regularly, then he, he has trouble learning. And he's not diagnosed with anything, he's just a kid. Um, so I'm trying to figure out or wedge in a way to um, give a new sense of a movement culture. You know, what does a movement-rich culture look like? And I'm framing that in sort of this idea of rewilding. Um, so trying to get away from the exercise model of fitness and the try to maybe give the physical literacy program another edge to itself that is you know more organic more in keeping with what we understand about embodiment you know what we understand about perception and stuff yeah as a theorist now about the moving i have to have it in my i have to have a theory of mind to have a theory of what i'm doing it's a real question but lots of sports coaches don't really have a theory of mind when you get into it, the, the most recent one for me is just how we perceive the world, you know, just how we actually see it and how we, in our, the cold, dark confines of our brain, there is an image of the world that is created, emerges, you know, a three-dimensional world I get out of the two-dimensional images on the back of my retina. Like, whoa, how does that all happen, right? Puzzling. And it used to be that, you know, we just represent what's out there in the world. It's that we have a representation in our minds of the world. Well, everything nowadays is telling us that's just not the case. We, we actively create the world <laughs> in front of us from our attention to the data, the sensory data that's coming in. And we're, we know that we're heavily visually dependent. We get, it's our strongest sense, but it's not the only sense, right? in fact, can create new senses and we can make more senses in our body by doing different things to it. But that becomes a real playground and a real lot of fun if you're prioritizing the sensing body as a way of knowing the world, right? And if it's the case that it's from the available information that I sensorily gather in, my, my, my cognitive apparatus is curating that information, it's picking the best that it thinks it needs to make a world for me? Well, if we're so numb to our senses now, what am I missing? What am I not seeing in the world that I could see in the world if I spent some time training my senses, like I train a chin-up, for example, right? So that, that's kind of a, a big 
interest to me because I think the one that got for me is when we went and saw Remy's first ultrasound when he was being growing inside my wife. And, and the sonographer is there with the ultrasound and the screen comes up and I jokingly say, well, it looks like, you know, a white cat chasing a white mouse in a snowstorm. I can't tell what's going on in there. And yet the sonographer could tell me everything. They could tell me everything because they've been trained in what to see. Well, that's kind of like what perception is as well at the moment in this current readings is that there, is, there are things to be seen and things that we can't see because I have a human eye and not an owl's eye. There are these physical limitations to what of the available information, but there's more information out there than I can actually capture. And then I have to be trained in, into what to see in order to really see it. Just like the sonographer is trained to see this detail in this picture that makes no sense to me. So in, in, this, in, in the kind of movement training that I'm interested in, in rewilding is that it's a sensorial practice, not just a classically physical one too. We're really drilling in to blindfolding yourself and doing things. We're really drilling into like tasting the air. <laughs> We're really drilling into the, the, the sensory picture that we can have as a body and then trying to have that enrich our movement, enrich our understanding of things, you know, that, that kind of thing. Because we, we, we've only been a literate body Abstract thought and language is a recent thing, you know, in terms of our entire evolution. Prior to all that, we were tracking beings. We were sensing things. We were totally present to whatever environment we were in. And we must have sensed it extremely well. We would have to have had to have been able to have the capacity to um, kind of feel or understand the, the, the change in the temperature and what that actually meant. <laughs> Whether it was going to be rain coming, or you know, we would have that kind of a nuance about ourselves as well. At least I imagine that we would have been, because we're more animal than we are, you know, uh, urban human. We were uh, oriented to survival, and we would have had ancestral knowledge passed on about what that looks like. That was yeah. connecting sensorily to moment by moment changing phenomena in the environment. So we would have been formed through a much more in-depth embeddedness yeah. into the phenomena of whatever world we came from. I think that's precisely true. And, and the thinking doesn't necessarily go there. I mean, we have these discussions about the evolving human and, and the evolution of the human. But we don't necessarily make the jump to, to, to the next thing. Oh, well, if this was our backstory, and that was 400,000 years long. <laughs> we haven't changed, evolutionary speaking, in the last 6,000 years. Like, we, physiologically, we are the same creatures, right? Um, this is reminding me, I was uh, doing some looking into, like, well, have we got any stronger, faster, better? My dad's a... Um, was a professional cyclist for a while. And I was like, you know, what was it? What, what do you, what's your take on the modern athletes today? It's like, oh, well, they're stronger, faster, quicker, and their bikes are better, you know, and they know more about training, you know, all these things that are um, about part of the training or the technology that augments our frame. But the body isn't radically different. The body is, hasn't evolved um, to be better or more specialized. It's just the, the sport itself has a way 
of specializing the kind of frame that it needs to excel in that sport. Now there are there are differences within that picture, but if you can imagine Nadia Comaneci in, in 1972, the famous gymnast. You know, my mum was a dual Olympian gymnast, but she was a, a, a full-bodied female with boobs and a beehive, right? You don't get <laughs> boobs and beehives on the gymnastics floor because the biomechanical requirements of the sport and our scientific desire to drill into that world and understand it in intimate detail tells us that the biomechanical frame of a person who's like Nadia Comaneci is perfect for gymnastics. So we have small gymnasts, you know, and we have tall basketballs with massive arms, and we have, you know, Michael Phelps, whose upper body, his lower legs are longer than his, than his upper body, right? And, you know, the, the, the sport chooses the frame in a way, specialized, but the frame hasn't changed. And if that's true, that the frame hasn't changed, then there are these deep kind of latent senses in our body. There's a deep kind of appreciation and connection to the natural world, or even just a need to be in the natural world that is there with us, you know, that we pay no attention to because we are totally urbanized now. We've made a new environment for ourselves. They're the new evolutionary pressures for our bodies. They're the new contexts that our bodies are adapting to. And it's the adaptions are not great. You know, we are stiffer, less mobile, ramping heart disease, like, you know, all of the, all of the, you know, markers for poor health are present now in our urban worlds. And the question is, well, why, what's that all about? Maybe it's because we're not moving and sensing now. We're like these sort of dumbed down versions of our older sort of more primal cells. And if that's the case, can we rewild? Like, what would that look like? It's not, not, not can we go back into the jungle? Because <laughs> that's, that's all past, and there might be some that do that. But how do we rewild in an urban setting? How do we rewild? Because we're not going back from urbanization. Like, we're 50 something percent urban now, and in 2050, we're, we're going to be 70% urban, like just getting more urban. But if that's the trajectory for us, and we still need healthy bodies, what would we do? And how would we do it? That's the question that I'm sort of playing with in rewilding. I also want to go back to your journey of rewilding. You mentioned it at the beginning of this conversation. You were working a nine to five. Mm. You were mm. in a chair a lot of the time. You were predominantly working from your brain. You were a lawyer in Melbourne. Can you, can you talk to us about your own rewilding? Okay, yeah, sure. So, so the catalyst moment was to try and get myself back in some physical shape, which I went back into the gymnastics gymnasium and that was a terrible idea. Like I did a forward roll, came up seeing stars, I started to get on my hands and you know, use my hands for like handstands and cut with my wrists hurt. Like I'd been out of the sport for a very long time. So that was awful. And so then I did the regular thing, I went to the gym. And I hadn't had a gym, real gym membership kind of thing before. I hadn't been a gym person, um, been in plenty of gyms, but there was nothing about the training that I was doing that was very sort of soul giving. Like, you know, it was very awkward. It felt very linear, especially for a gymnast. You know, it was really obvious that this wasn't really great for my body running on a treadmill. I remember the first time I actually ran on a treadmill and the treadmill was pulling my legs back because that's what it does, right? And I remember feeling this feeling like, that's weird. When does that ever happen? Like, and why does everybody do this all the time? Like, how do they feel like they're running? Anyway, 
I tried to find something different and I literally stumbled across um, George Hebert's work, this character, this French naval officer from the 1900s who writes this book called The Natural Method. And he was a naval officer, uh, physical, but a physical education teacher. And he was, um, took a really interesting, a real critique look at the indigenous populations of where he was stationed as a French, French naval officer. I mean, so he was in um, St. Pierre in a town um, called Martinique, I think it's in the Caribbean Sea. This moment in um, 1902 where this, there's a violent eru volcanic eruption, the whole thing just goes up and many lose their life. And George and a few other officers were the first to arrive in port to try and rescue people. And he saw people failing in their ability to help each other out. They couldn't get out of windows, they couldn't get down, you know, broken homes, out of rubble, couldn't carry each other. And he's the physical education teacher. And yet all the islanders were doing fine. They were scrambling around and running and very helpful. Why are they so good, you know, and why are they so capable? And yet my crew are incapable to help and save each other. And it had a profound, reportedly a profound effect on him. And he had that comment that he created like need to be strong to be useful, that fitness was a civic responsibility, not just something you do to be more physically attractive or better at some sport. And I, I the, the natural method was this, this $5 book that someone had translated on Kindle and I just read it and applied it to myself, which had me going outdoors a lot. And while I was going outdoors, I met these young kids who were training parkour and I'd never seen this before. Effectively, these young kids were training on obstacles uh, organically, and I was really interested in that. And I joined in, and I was like three times their average age, right? It was quite a show. But I, I was competent enough to keep up because I, I was um, had this gymnastics backstory. And as I started to get stronger and so on, that old body kind of returned a bit, as grumpy and as as, uh, as it was. They were young kids in the streets of Melbourne and I'm a criminal lawyer. And once that got out, then it was like, they would teach me parkour and I'd give them advice on their possession charges. So that, that's kind of like how, so this was this relationship that I had with these kids who would teach me parkour. And, and then it kind of all kind of bubbled up from there. I, I continued to train in this practice and I, I reasonably proficient at it. I'm not an expert by any shape. It wasn't until... I had flown to Canada and I was out in the forest and um, it was really snowy and cold and icy rivers and, and fallen logs and stuff. And I was in a bit of a spot where I kind of had to overcome an obstacle. It wasn't life or death, but it could be pretty serious. I was out on my own and very cold. And if I fell in the water that I was trying to get across, um, you know, I had a long way to go before I was, would be warm again. But nevertheless, I made it um, over this obstacle and it was like this kind of moment. It was like, whoa, how good do I feel right now? I just did this thing. No one saw it. <laughs> um, but I know I did it. And I had this moment where I felt very capable in the world. And the only thing I'd really done is just use my body to overcome some obstacle that was in the way. And suddenly that was like a metaphor for me. That was like, you know, I mean, lack of is written a book about, you know, the, the, the metaphors we live by. Like, Suddenly, this was my metaphor, right? And um, obstacles were these life metaphors. And I was like, whoa, this is really interesting that this would, have, this would happen for me. 
and that's when everything changed. I was like, came back to Bridget. I was like, Bridget, no, I'm not going back to being a lawyer. Um, she's like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this other thing. Um, and so that's kind of how I entered into the uh, parkour. Well, at that time, it was referred to as natural movement. When I tried to look around for people who were doing this stuff at that time, there's sort of parkour things going on. And then there was a body of work called Natural Movement, which is um, MoveNet, was one of the uh, organizations that I first sort of tapped into to figure out what they were doing. And they had some interesting answers, but it only took me so far. And I started to look for other people within that space. And I saw um, Mr. Fitch and Animal Flow, and then I discovered Fighting Monkey, and um, eventually bumped into Rafe Kelly and his work, and obviously had a chance to do that with you most recently. But all these sort of practitioners kind of satellite around an appreciation of movement in natural contexts and what those movements might be and what they might look like and, and so on. There's only a very few, I think, practitioners on the planet that are really dialed in doing some really meaningful work. Um, and, and, and I honestly think that Rafe Kelly is one of those characters who, who's not only interested in the physicality of the movement, but the meaning behind the movement and seems to capture a lot of his attention and that's very rare in the sports community in the fitness community you've talked a few times um in this conversation about what what's like the upper limits so um i don't know if you said the word joy but that was what came to me when i heard you talk about overcoming the obstacle and feeling a sense of elation at what you'd been able to do. Um, and then coupling that with this idea of access to one's own body as well as the environment, and then how that translates into overcoming and play and joy and access to spaces and expansive perspectives on environments themselves. So they become uh, places of opportunity. There's this, this quality that you're describing, which is um, access to more engagement in the world that is empowering, exciting, hopeful. So I'm imagining you on this river and you just had this crawl across the tree you made it through um and i'm curious like for any listener whether they've had an experience like this of overcoming an obstacle through movement in a natural environment um i have a memory from after i graduated from high school i went on a trip to new zealand with my sister <clears throat> and my best friend liz from from um New Mexico. And we were walking the Abel Tasman track together. Yeah. And we were crossing a bridge. And as we were crossing the bridge, the wind took my sister's hat and blew it off her head into the water below. And we have another 10 days of trekking and hats kind of important with the sun. And my sister Josie was like, oh, my hat, I lost it. And I was like, no we will get the hat, you know, <laughs> we shall overcome. And so I climbed down 
I had to climb over a bunch of rocks and I swam out to get the hat, swam back, felt so much empowerment and elation at um, overcoming. We weren't gonna let the hat go away. That was her hat and she needed it and, and I got it for her. And um, it also helped that New Zealand doesn't isn't like Australia where there's no saltwater crocodiles and like there's no deadly snakes. <laughs> I had a little bit more, you know, confidence in that situation because of that. Yeah. Um, but it, it reminds me of what you're describing of this feeling of um, I can overcome and, and the joy of I can be useful. Yeah, precisely. You probably could think of lots of different movements that I could investigate in this sort of PhD, but I chose parkour and then I narrowed it even narrowed it to nature parkour, which very few people do. Um, because I'm interested in that, um, the nature-human connection, but I, you know, I'm really interested in exploring that place. Because parkour has this um, way in which, and, and certainly parkour in the modern version of the sort of um, practice as it is now, and the Georges Hebert version of parkour back then, there are some synchronicities and they overlap, but what they're all are very interested in is this functional capacity, right? The, to be able to swim. Like, so you're not gonna find swimming and wrestling in parkour in the modern iteration of the sport, but you would in George Hebert's version, you would wrestle and you would swim and you would carry and lift. I mean, you wouldn't do those things in modern parkour, right? So, so I kind of mush all that together in nature parkour. Um, because it's about this idea of being functionally useful, present to my environment, situationally ready to move, and my physical practices plays with all those spontaneities. And because there is this great, I mean, it's, diff it's different. I mean, I know I've you know, done a gymnastics competition and landed in the room going, yeah, and slapped someone's hand and there's this moment, right? You can have those moments in sport and you can have those moments in just, in just about anything, you know, with your example of rescuing the hat. But I do think that leaning into the practice of nature parkour sort of does that in a way that few other sort of activities really do well. And because it's new, it's not carrying all this baggage, right? It hasn't been overanalyzed as a sport. You know, when the, when the boys, literally boys, created this modern spectacle called parkour in the 1990s, they didn't have any names for the words, the skills that they did. And suddenly they're on, you know, television and BBC One or someone's putting Jump London on the on the big screen, and their phones are ringing and there's, you know, agents wanting to talk to these guys and people wanting to learn the sport. And they're like, well, we don't, we're not coaches. <laughs> they weren't ready for this interest. <clears throat> um, and yet, what's really fascinating about their version of parkour is that they too created it in a forest. They all sort of sort of went out to train, and it's logs and it's this park you know and it's a pirate ship in there apparently and there's things to jump and structures to muck around on and they invent this practice that they call parkour and they change the 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 parkour as a c in french would be a course or a way and they whack in a k to distinguish it as in their version and it's about parkour with a k but it wasn't lost on me that they created this practice out of nothing except their own fascination with running around in the forest you know, and here they are, you know, this spectacle of these bodies, totally adaptable to any age 
and any ability. I can attest to that. Exactly, right? I, I did the baby parkour um, tree. Mm -hmm. um, and what I loved about it as a dance therapist, as a movement analyst was um, I'm familiar with how I can move in spaces, but moving in relationship with objects was really curious to me. Like Ooh. understanding uh, mo momentum, the relationship of contact with the trees, um, the rhythm of which limb comes first, all of these coordination patterns, it was, it did feel like a playground. It felt like I could have done that first afternoon for a week, you know, yeah. and just yeah. continued to massage those skills and, um, and learn more from Kyle who was helping. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you know, a grown woman with a, a background that's not involved with parkour and yet there was this accessible world of movement skills that were totally deliverable for you and, and, and to great effect, you know, I think few sports are like that, you know, it's no equipment, it's just you and whatever you find. So that's great. You do that anywhere. It's not, it's not necessarily a specialized skill, like, a, like it's just, you could probably play around the tree and your movements would resemble or distill themselves down into the correct pattern, you know, just by themselves. Because the parkour is really just an expression of moving your body with this object and it, you know, there's only so many variations, I guess, of getting that safe or doing that well. And there's a kind of like an end point where it sort of funnels into being a, a practice. And then if that one's working out, you can refine it. That's why you parkour when you're out in the forest, you do a few basics, but it's like, I get out of the way and everyone explores and they come up with their own ability, you know, their own ways to, to overcome the problem. Um, quite naturally, like just naturally, it's like playground, you know, it's basically a playground for kids to play in. So, um, yeah. And going back to kind of like the trust in the movement itself as a teacher. Mm. Yeah, to trust that those bodies know what to do. Well, that's what part, the, the, the modern iteration of parkour was young men figured out a way to risk elegantly, to lean into risk, right? Now, risk is almost way out of any person's experience of activity these days because oh, no, liability, lawsuits, you know, insurance, right? But risk is so valuable. Like it's so valuable to, to experience, right? And to understand your limitations and when to, to not do something as opposed to, to do something. If you don't have any sense of your, your limitations or your capacities, I find that's more risky than for me because a person will leap to their detriment not having any understanding of, of the, the, the risk that they're involved in. Risky play uh, is necessary for, for, a, for a healthy body and mind. And parkour does risk really well. It looks extreme and crazy because YouTube exists. But when you, when you work it all back and having coached gymnastics for a very long time, I find parkour one of the safest things that I can engage kids in, uh, not the, the most risky, you know? 
I get scared when I see, you know, two teams with 15 players playing Aussie rules football, for heaven's sakes. Like, talk about chaos, right? How they don't colliding bodies and heads and, you know, rough and, you know, you know wrestling, like you know, running people to the ground. And, like, that's sprained ankles and broken arms. And, you know, that's risky. <laughs> Parkour is the, the safe edge <laughs> for me. Um, and it's so accessible, boys, girls, young, old, um, able-bodied, disabled bodies, like I'm gonna throw that in there because we all, often when you talk about bodies, there's always this archetype of body that is fully fun functional in that, in quotations. But when you come from a movement perspective and you focus on movement now and not sport or, you know, the criteria of a sport, and then you focus on a philosophical, a, a carefully nuanced philosophy or an ontology about what a body is, and you go from that starting point that all bodies need to move, no matter what body you turn up with, you move that body to, to the extent of its limitations. Like you, you, all, you, you find out a way to move how you can move as your body, you know, being in your skin. And, and that's the ceiling, right? Like that's the, that's the project. I, I find that with parkour, it's a question of ability and disability it tends to not evaporate, but it's not front and center in the, in the practice. You move your body how you can and, and you explore your movement to the best of your body's ability. Because even a technically non-disabled person can be as equally um, uh, limited in range and scope and ability just because of they haven't learned skills, right? So, there is this different approach, I find, um, to questions of ableism and so on in this particular space that I mean using parkour as, and nature parkour as the medium that is a bit different to other sports. Once again, the accessibility for anybody to learn and engage with an environment, it feels like it's focused less on a sense of mastery or like a product and more a uh, quality of curiosity and uh, and um, communication with yeah. the environment, like a yeah. learning of a language. Yeah. It's, a, it's outcome independent. You know, like it's, it's not wedded to an end point, for example. I mean, you might have an obstacle. You might say that's an outcome dependency because you've got this obstacle you want to overcome. But, but whether, you, whether you do or you don't, um, is just a creature of yourself on the day and the friends that you're with. Because in parkour spaces, you know, there's this lovely metaphors, like we start together, we finish together, like no one gets left behind, you know, we're strong to be useful. Like this is a very uh, collective approach to obstacles. It's never just you by yourself. It might be you're trained by yourself, but the idea is that, you know, someone might go up part of the wall and reach, lean down and stick their arm down and the next person grabs your arm and you pull people like this. The, the ways in which you might overcome something are very different. And so everyone leans in. And if you have this idea that that's, no one- That's really interesting because most of what I've observed is individuals. Mm. And that's, it would be very inspiring to see that as a layer to the work. Yeah, yeah, it's a big layer. Uh, when a group of say parkour kids might come to, or adults might come to a space and they say, this is where we're going to train today. And no one really has an idea of what's going on or what's going to be the first movement. 
games usually appear, you know, games and play pop up and someone will do a jump and then someone else will do the same jump. And let's say, oh, let's try and get from here to that spot over there. That's just our, that's the goal, for example. How we get there, no one knows. And everyone kind of like adds on to each other's movements. And now suddenly you have this line that everyone, but everyone made up the line. It wasn't just you doing it by yourself. There's one idea of that collective nature of parkour problem solving. And then there are all these other, um, more in the Georges Hebert end of natural method because it's his, his method became part of the military training program. And so getting your comrade up the wall, you know, hanging your leg down so they can literally climb up your own body to get to the top kind of stuff is part of the mix of how you might get your team or your unit squad <laughs> through something. Julie Angel wrote a great book called uh, Breaking the Jump, which is a great read about the history story of parkour itself. But she also is a cinematographer. She makes films and she made these wonderful films that sort of show many dimensions of parkour. And one of those is these three extremely um, competent women doing parkour, which at that time when a video coming out was quite unusual because it was mostly a male dominated sport, but here were these three British women doing a great job. And they had well, lots of these um, collective movements going on. The one's up the wall and the other one's reaching the hand and well, one's up the wall and one's literally running up the back and you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, a, it's an individual activity. Um, it's a solo activity. I train almost exclusively on my own because I don't have any other people who do what I do. Um, and it's a collective activity. It might be helpful just to lean into um, what rewilding is as a concept, maybe. I would love that. The first time I heard the word rewilding, it was, um, I think it was George Monbiot's book, Feral. It's a while ago that it was printed, but it was rewilding in the, con the context of conservational biology. So in about 1992, Dave Foreman, I think his name is, um, and a bunch of sort of ecological conservationists are doing their bit trying to conserve land. But they realize that the tracts of land that they're trying to conserve are not big enough, vast enough to sustain populations of species, um, in particular apex predators. Well, one example of rewilding in practice, and that comes with the re putting wolves back into Yellowstone National Park, right? That was an example of rewilding. And the, the importance of apex predators in this stuff was that, you know, once you lose the wolves, then you have more deer and they eat more grass and that changes the rivers. Like that was the argument in the book, right? So, but you have to have a large enough space for a biotic community to thrive. If it's too small, then it can't sustain enough species. So these guys were like, oh, we need to merge massive tracts of land. We just can't parcel, compartmentalize. We've got to get all of British Columbia linked. And so that was their phrase, their word for rewilding this land was making these connections between land. We can't just do satellite maps and pick, because we don't know where the animals walk, whether this is a thoroughfare for animals or not, right? So they actually had to get into the land and navigate it and watch it intimately closely to understand which animals were traveling where and when, and then how we would pass all this land together. And the word that they coined at the time was rewilding. And that left my memory for a long time. And then I went into world of fitness. And along the way, I was like, oh, I feel wild again. So then this 
oh, am I rewilding? And then, so I started to look a bit closely at the conservationist model and what really attracted me was the walking on the landscape to solve the puzzle of putting land back together. So we had to go back into landscape in order to understand it, in order to better care for it. This reminds me a lot of what you were saying about, about embodiment um, at the beginning and movement, like you have to go to the original place yeah. of the phenomenon of moving yeah. space or moving the body. It cannot be something that's done reflectively from a no. different Exactly. So that idea kind of being back into the landscape sort of really captured my imagination. As a, as a component of rewilding. And in this sense, it's caring about land. These guys wanted to care about the landscape, right? And so there's, it's, it's an intervention on a human's part to, re, to, re, to replenish something. And the wilderness was this idea of self-willed landscape. If you put the land back together in large enough um, segments, it will heal itself. We've got, just got to get out of the way. And um, recently read another interesting, really interesting book. Um, I think it's called Wild Tending or Tending the Wild. It's about indigenous cultures here in BC where the, the academic is doing this really deep dive into indigenous agricultural practices. John Muir comes to you know, California and it's BC and writes about this untouched utopia, this you know, bountiful landscape. Well, it wasn't untouched, it was a garden. Like this whole place was tended to, right? And so that was sort of informing my thinking around rewilding. These people were now, now attending to physically and tending the gardens or forests and, to, and walking and being present on the landscape. So if we're rewilding a human body, if we are going to attend to healing ourselves, like what, what would we do? Like what? What are the things that will tick off the box? Because I'm always very practically inclined. Walking your own landscape, you're walking your own place, knowing your own neighborhood in a parkour sense, that takes up on a whole new flavor. Laneways, alleyways, forest paths, backs of shopping centers, my own house, the neighbor's back, you know, the backyard. Knowing my landscape, is kind of like knowing my biome in a kind of biological sense. The first part of rewilding myself is getting to know where I am. Um, I've done this in all sorts of places. In, in, I've done it in Mexico, I've done it in Australia, I've done it here in BC, in Newfoundland. Like getting to know your place is quite a detailed thing. It becomes a real exciting journey because I always try and find a forager, someone who's understands that the weeds are vegetables, like the weeds are a salad, you know, in the area to find out what can you eat in this place? Because my old evolutionary body would have done precisely that. I really get interested in waterways and watersheds and rivers and because they connect the landscape and they run through it. Where are the rivers in urban places? And if you really get down the, down the well deep enough, you can find maps of the old river systems of old places. You can see that the, we now have got roads over the rivers that used to run through this place. You know, it tells this picture of this story. You know, that's kind of, in a way, rewilding. I'm, I'm attuning to the place that I'm in, and the way my body would want to live and thrive if I was 
um, if, I, if I needed to or wanted to and to pay attention to landscape. And then of course, you start running over it and jumping over it and doing all kinds of other interesting things to make it more exciting and fun. One of the most dynamic things I think I teach is just how to sit still. <laughs> just, you know, my clients have sit spot homework. The only question that they ever have to ask themselves is what's in motion? Because I focus on movement. Just sit down for 20 minutes, get rid of the phone and have a look at what's in motion, what's moving. And that's a metaphorical question as well as a practical one. You know, it could be emotions in you. Okay, it could be a whole new other avenue of inquiry. But to a person, everyone says, there's a lot more movement going on, you know, than I realized. And um, they notice stuff. <laughs> and noticing is a kind of a lost sense highly digitized, you know, world. And in a rewilding sense, as we we're talking about before, we were very sensorially geared to the world. You know, could people talk about um, you know, mindfulness? You know, I'm not, I'm more about sen sensing. Sensing is, is about mindfulness in a sense, you know, it is mindfulness. It's the, it's the practical skill that mindfulness kind of leans into noticing things, being quiet enough to, to, to see what's around you and to see detail and to learn, you know, we talk about a sonographer, to learn what there is to see and having a skill set behind it kind of back that up. So that's kind of the picture of rewilding that I'm trying to frame this physical, sensorial, kind of embodied moving being and treating it, thinking of it like the biological organism that it is. If it is an organism, what are its tendencies? What does it require to be healthy and vital? What are the movements that we could practice to do that? What are the sensory activities that we might do that you know, make us more healthy and vibrant beings? Clean water, fresh air, whole foods, good sleep. You know, they, you can, the list is in one sense intuitively obvious, I'm just trying to pull it all together in one coherent picture and make um, a philosophical argument for why it's one of the best things for the body and a practical argument about how you might actually deliver that in a, in a real context, like a school. I was talking to an architect, a town planner, a town government planner. He's like, you know, if I had a mindset like you, like what would I, what landscapes might I make as public spaces? And, you know, we talked for hours about making landscapes that were parkour-friendly, you know, open spaces where you don't find the no skateboarding here, no rollerblading here, don't physically engage with your world, but go for it, right? Run around. Or if it's an open up space, sit down with your friends. Like these large, you know, Europe, European cities have large open spaces where people gather you know, in large numbers. We don't have many of those in urban centres, really open public gathering spaces. They're, they're emerging and they're getting really creative and interesting too in the same process. But what if they also had movement in mind as an essential feature of being a body? What, what would you put in them, right? And it becomes a super exciting place for kids and adults and people to be. Why are, why are parks and playgrounds have only kids' playgrounds why aren't they kind of 
youthful playgrounds where adults and kids can play and run together in very simple ways. You know, why are parents watching their kids play, for example? Why aren't they actually playing? Um, so when you start to tweak this idea that movement is a non-negotiable feature of being a human body, and the ways of expressing your body can be very creative and interesting, nature parkour, then, and, we, and we're in the business of building spaces, well, what kind of spaces could we make? That it becomes, is kind of a, it becomes yeah. kind of uh, um, an exercise of creativity and imagination and envisioning um, what would be optimal for the next generation, or exactly. what or what could be if if we're taking into account the time delay for change. What would be the seeds that are planted now that would cultivate within the next generation? an appetite for these kinds of spaces, um, like a, a movement and a, um, a drive to create laws and policies that ensure and protect spaces. I feel drawn into the invitation on a practical level and also on a theoretical level. Like I want Ooh. to see those um, ideas move into the imagination of the collective. And I want to engage with my kids maybe differently at the park. <laughs> so both things are happening for me too, as I talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the, I mean, that's the program. And so I'm, I'm using rewilding and human rewilding poetically, mythically. I'm making a story. I'm creating a narrative really um, and being, a bit cheeky with it as well, but I'm trying to make it rigorous. You know, I'm trying to make it practical and trying to make it grounded in good science and good philosophy. Um, I've been enjoying taking my son out into the city, right? Late at night and he's five. So am I a good parent or not? I don't know, but it's after, it's dark. And um, you know, it's after work hours and it's 7.30 and we're out in the city somewhere. But when I walk around with him, in the city, he, he is effervescent with interest of what's going on. There's lights and there's, it's, it's, quiet, it's quieter now. There's not much traffic and there's sidewalks and laneways and parks and all this interesting stuff going on, which captures his, his, his imagination. It does, get, it does get dark very early. Yes, but when we're there, no one else is out. <laughs> No one is out just wandering around and playing, but I can see him light up physically and intellectually in this space because it's novel, it's fun, and it's creative. Like that's a rewilding thing, right? Just going out for a wander with your five-year-old and see where you end up. You know, um, totally would fit the bill for all of the things rewilding, right? And we were coming back on the bus and we were tr trying to learn how to use Google Maps, you know, playing with Google Maps. And he, he could see that he was the dot on the map, you know, that moving dot on the GPS. And we were crossing the bridge and he says, oh, daddy, we're on the bridge. We're on the bridge right now. I'm like, we're on the bridge. I was like, yeah, but the bridge is out there. Like not in there, the bridge is over there because there was another bridge and it was all lit up and it was beautiful in the sort of city skyline. And he looks up like, oh yeah, that, that's the bridge. And right there I could see, 
he's inhabiting two worlds now. <laughs> he has the virtual world in which he can physically locate his being and presence right there. Because he said to me, there we are, pointing to the screen. We're on the bridge. But it's a digital screen, right? But in his brain, he's got that picture. But then the real bridge is over here. The real bridge which, with texture and color and light and in you know, all its beauty is right over there. And you can see that one too. You can, can kind of mix them two together. Okay, well, like I had this moment on the bus. Well, what if the digital world becomes the And in, for all practical purposes, that's true for lots of people, including myself, right? We inhabit a digital world. That, that debate has been won. But there's still this other world there, this real world space, which we don't often get into. We don't go often enough. And it doesn't have to be rarefied forests. I mean, that's a very precious, very lucky thing to be able to do because those spaces for most people's lives don't exist. But that doesn't mean you can shut off your senses and just live inside a condo. That's not the answer to the urbanization. The answer is rewilding our senses in our urban spaces um, and then finding as much time as we can in the green spaces as, you know, whatever place we're in affords it, you know. Um, but I could see in Remy, um, this new world could be one that he would live in, in a virtual space. And it, it, it frightened me <laughs> a little. <laughs> but yeah, you, you can see the invitation, right? You can see the, the lusciousness of the idea, you know, that it's sensuous and it's sensual, you know, and it's a sensorial kind of experience. And I'm sort of using physical fitness, parkour, to kind of drive that wedge into being a sensory being for the sports jocks of the world. I might not get all the um, phenomenology and the philosophy and the stuff, like, and, the, and the real kind of meaning behind the power of, of the sensing body, you know, but they will get, you know, the, the Kong vaults and the crawling and the climbing and the, and the activities, which will do that work anyway. It'll do the work that we want to get to. It'll just be um, maybe not as explicit in every, every program, every rewilding program you see. And perhaps everyone's journey looks a little bit different in this process. Yeah, um, yeah. Returning to a, um, a sense of that reciprocal nature of being in relationship with a space as well as within my own being yeah it is that is um connected to that the aliveness of of the senses in a way that you know the virtual space hasn't i know they're trying to with virtual reality <laughs> well of course they haven't been able to cult they haven't been able to create that yeah well, I mean, I, I um, experienced a real live VR set um, just before I came to, uh, on my travels here. And I went with my good friend, who's an academic, but he's like 60, right? Like the guy didn't have a computer when he was younger, right? So we're walking along the streets of Melbourne, doing our wandering, just wandering around. Like there's this virtual reality um, gaming place. I've never been into one. I'm like, oh, do you want to go in there and have a look? He's like, okay. So you put this headset on. And the first thing you do is you practice this um, getting used to the headset. And you put it on and you're in, and there's an elevator right in front of you. 
reach up with your finger and you push the button and you walk into the elevator and the elevator goes up. And then the elevator doors open and you're 40 floors up and you've got to walk a beam. You've got to walk this little beam. And on the floor in real life, there is a small beam that you can feel and put your feet on, right? You walk out on this thing and the wind is rushing and you, you, I can feel the anxiety. I can feel it. It's a real feeling and it's not real, but my body thinks it's real. And I get out on the edge of the platform and then the platform disappears and I plummet, right? And like the shock of it all. And you're like, whoa, the headset comes up, right? Good science, right? We can, our bodies will inhabit virtual spaces as if they are real. That alone is super powerful and really scary because if we can inhabit a world and think it's real, right? But it's not. <laughs> Where is our grasp on things at that point? Like, you know, what is real at that point? You know, and when I did that, had that experience, I was like, man, the body is just this sensing thing, and you can confuse it, and you can co-opt it, and you can change how it thinks about things in a virtual space, because that's what it does. It just senses, and then we have to have this other feature of our embodied nature, like our reflective cognitive capacities to interpret that data and make meaningful sense of it, right? So the virtual space is really interesting. Like for me, it's like, oh, you probably could have a virtual forest and you could have the room set up in such a way that the wind is blowing around and you could maybe feel it. And you could probably put scent in there and there was like some aromatherapy going on and you could walk out into a rich forest and that might actually have some good physiological benefits because your body doesn't know the difference. It doesn't know no difference. Except, you know, your headset's off and you're still in the room, right? We haven't got vitamin D, we haven't got all these other things that we know we need, you know, uneven textures, uh, uh, landscapes that's squishy, and, you know, all this other stuff that comes with the real world is not going to be in our virtual world. But there are um, ways in which we can see that the virtual space teaches us how the body senses and what it's kind of doing. And when I look at that in a rewilding sense, it's like, this is really interesting because I'm trying to reorganize or rehack or attend to the body in a rewilding context. I don't always have to be in a forest to do that. You know what I mean? Like a real forest. We can play with ideas too and create virtual worlds because we're good at it. And, we, and our bodies can kind of, they don't pretend, they live vicariously as if it were true although the game is up at some point, but there's still benefits, there's still you know, measurable benefits that we can get out of that experience. It's not perfect, it's an imitation, but it gets us part of the way. So even my rewild thinking, I'm open to these ideas um, about rewilding. I'm not looking back to some primitive, you know, caveman-esque where, where lots of natural movement goes, like, you know, we've got to squat because squat's part of our, you know, functional anatomy as primates used to squat on the floor. And, like no 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 that's not what's going on the body is totally malleable it's totally capable of squatting as it is capable of doing Cirque du Soleil you know these are the species of the spectrum we've got right but it's malleable creative energetic wonderful body right and all these crazy things um so yeah let's so lean into that kind of that, that part of us and the, the natural movement dialogue is one that I'm really staying away from because it's a real red herring, I think. As um, soon as you call it natural, 
I'm like, what is that? For me, the, 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 the shift away was like, okay, if you're going to call a movement a natural movement, so where's the ceiling and where's the beginning of that, right? And if I have a person who is disabled, for example, and they can't perform your natural movement, but they do some other kind of movement, well, where are we now? How is that discussion beneficial? Is there an unnatural movement, right? Like, what, what is that? So like, you know, natural movement, people won't do handstands, for example, because it's not a natural, there's no, but the body can do it and it's good at it. And you can balance on one hand if you train yourself. For, yeah. I know, right? It's helpful for your whole physiology. You different perspective when you're upside down. Exactly. And it's ancient, right? Handstands have been around for centuries. It's in one of the oldest yoga poses we, you know, around being upside down. And yet this evolutionary take on natural movement would say, no, no, that's not a, that's not a thing we can touch. It's like, ah, why would you limit yourself? And um, yeah, so kind of stay away from this idea of natural movement down and try to figure out I think, a different way of explaining, explaining things. Damien, thank you so much. I feel like yeah. it's a really wonderful walk in the forest. Lots of textures, lots of layers, lots of things for me to take away and think about, for listeners to think about. Well, you're welcome. I was, uh, was, that, I was apprehensive about, because I'm not you know, an academic per se. I'm, I'm in this new world now, and, and embodiment's not my wheelhouse, although it's becoming you know, a wheelhouse, so I'm learning more. But I really had enjoyed uh, the discussion too. When we move, you know, in the in a in a lemniscaping process between theory and concept and personal experience, and it it does sometimes usher us into different ways of telling the story. You know, you're talking mm. about um, creating a new mythology. There's a woman that I that I met actually in a dance class. She's wonderful. Her name's Renee Soleil and she's an eco-psychologist. And she uses the, the term um, ecological belonging. Mm. So, you know, we, we cannot become indigenous, mm. right? But we can acquire ecological belonging. Yeah, of course, yeah. feels like what you're describing in the mm-hmm. walk in your own neighborhood and sit on your own stoop or you know hang from a tree in your neighborhood get to know the other organisms that you cohabitate with and what does that do to how we choose to care for the places that are ours and if everyone starts to do that Mm. how will our trajectory change yeah totally creating this web of intervening. Like we start with us and what are the other beings that are around? And, you know, it's not immediately obvious to him that rocks are beings, <laughs> the, the rock beings and the tree beings and these all these other beings. But, you know, that language doesn't take very much for it to percolate into his mind and it's part of the vernacular. Um, and you're so right to point out about we can't be Indigenous because when I, when I started out early on this, this was this idea that, Oh, you're leaning into um, indigenous knowledges right now. This is you're gonna have to be careful about the cultural appropriation or misappropriation of other other knowledges, right? And I was sensitive to that, and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I need to keep that in mind. But then I was also thinking, yeah, hang on a second. Although I'm Western colonial 
uh, white stock. I'm an evolutionary being too. Like my ancestors are the same ancestors as indigenous folks. And in terms of where we come from, single-celled organisms, you know, <laughs> fish, reptiles, you know, primates, you know, we, that story is anybody's story. That's a story that we all can share, including indigenous folk. Like it's not one and the other. So I think that's what, that's part of the power of the rewilding story. It sort of cuts through a layer of politics that we don't need to get into when we talk about movement and movement in nature. How would we be as, you know, how would I be as white male colonial, an, a tender to the landscape? How do I attend or attune and be part of this landscape? And I think there is a bit of a sense that I don't have, like we don't have a, a way in because our history is so cerebral and from an industrial society, you know. But that ancestral knowledge is in the DNA of our bones, you know, it's, that's in there. You know, there's a reason why forest therapy is great therapy and why phytoncides work in our body is because the body had figured out a way to, to lean into nature for its own benefit. And that's what we're doing in Rewild. Katie Bowman's got this wonderful analogy. I'll share it with you now because it's a good story. It talks about orcas in, the, in, in captivity experience a thing called flaccid fin syndrome where the whale fin just dives over. And the question was like, why? I mean, and the, and the whale's fin is integral to its survival. And it can't swim straight or at speed. So then it couldn't hunt and it would die if this were, if this thing, this happened in the wild. But the question was like, okay, well, if something is so integral to the orca's livelihood, its very existence, why would it not have evolved a better structure? to keep it upright. Why wouldn't it be, why is it only cartilage and not bone, for example? Or why, if it's so important, why doesn't it have a more robust structure? And the puzzle was resolved because the orca is an ocean swimming animal and it would always be swimming in straight lines and the ocean pressures of the, of the water would keep the fin upright and it would be underneath the water. It would never find itself in the uh, environment in the zoo, you know, in, the, in the aquarium or whatever. And so, it didn't need to evolve a structure because it had a structure and the structure was nature. It was its relationship with the world. When I read that, that, that kind of assessment, I was like, we're, we are no different. We are totally no different. The fact that, you know, sitting emerged as the new smoking, which is not a good way of describing it because sitting is not the problem, but sitting for too long is the problem. The fact that our, we, our sedentary behavior has all these deleterious effects on our respiratory system and our heart and so on is because moving around was the way we, our bodies, leaned into nature and we had this reciprocal relationship to keep us healthy with sunlight and textures and so on. It's like that's the rewilding story. If we're going to urbanize ourselves in the way that we have, then we better realize that there are some physiological long-term consequences for our health and wellness. And it's not just a fitness story, right? It's a whole body <laughs> story. But the seeds of the, the, the idea of how to get that body right again is to look at history and is to look how we evolved in a natural context, and is to look at the ways in which nature was beneficial to us, that we leaned into it. So, you know, fight to the sides of trees and wonderful things for the immune system, you know, like, Immune systems are 
are boosted just by being in trees for 15 minutes. If you do it often enough, those immune benefits last for months. You know, like that's crazy, right? It's because we were always with trees. And so we had this response that ended up being beneficial to the presence of essential wood oils in the, in the air. And our immune system got a spike out of it. That was helpful. We survived. Those little images of um, the intersection between the health of our body and the natural world are everywhere once you start looking for them. They're all over the place. I guess that's, that's part of the rewilding story too, to bring this up um, into the level of health and fitness and wellness in a way that's sort of like meaningful, the story. Yes. And so many of these things have existed since the beginning. We evolved within these settings to acquire these benefits and they exist whether or not the research is there to prove it and name it. So think of all of the things that are there that we have not yet pinpointed and described. Mm. Um, and once again, that's coming back to this relationship between the phenomena themselves, the lived experience, yeah. the um, present, and the limitations and the necessity in our culture to name and describe and create cause and effect uh, yeah. descriptions of it in order to validate this whole world. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I feel within myself that return, the, an impulse to return to what you were describing at the beginning of like, be in it, mm. notice, mm. let the language grow, might mm. like poetry. Yeah. Thank God for all the people who are also doing all the scientific inquiry. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't make it more true just because you get a paper that comes out and says, you know, being in the trees is healthy for us. You know, it always was healthy for us. We knew that already. We didn't have to read <laughs> the paper. Yeah. But, we, but, it's, but it goes to this question of perception, right? And um, how we perceive the world and what's, what's not in view of, of because we, we lean into the scientific community and we offload our sensorial um, lived experiences and the truth value of those lived experiences the, and the, the knowledge and the wisdom that are in those sensory experiences because we've had this practice and history of parking you know, factual information over here and, and, you know, giving science a capital T, the truth, where it's always has been provisional knowledge. It's always true for a time until we, it, it, it's, it is a hypothesis, this question, and we change it over and we learn something new and we get better. It's always provisional truth. And that's why phenomenology is so powerful, because it goes back to that lived experience and maybe you can articulate um, something about your experience, which is meaningful and can be emulated, which is, which is just one person, you know, one, one person's lived experience of their body in a sensorial way. And, you know, phenomenology tries to draw that out and give you a, a way of describing that um, so that others can benefit from it. It's been a great um, critique of the scientific community was the emergence of phenomenology and its critique of scientism and objectivism and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but it's about perception, like you've got to learn what there is to see. And if it's always been the case that science has been the seer, then you know, there's a kind of a psychic blindness. You know? um, I have a bias towards ignoring the body as a truthful mode of knowing about the world. And you know, the cerebral stuff takes you know, antecedence. 
so yeah, the rewilding story is kind of like a back to the body, you know, a back to trusting the body. I mean, contemporary dancers and dance therapists, and these people have been all over this stuff, right? Um, for, for, for decades, mm -hmm. decades. But there's, um, there's this um, connection with environment and with nature is so inspiring and so necessary because um, some of that work has been disconnected from our environments. Yeah. I'm finding that even with my own work, this impulse to move more into the movement and out of the conversations everyone wants to go to first, right? Yeah. When, we're, when they're faced with a problem, it feels like the verbalizing has an illusion of being the source of resolution. Yeah. And in my experience, the movement helps to clarify what needs to be spoken. Yeah, totally. I would 100% yeah. agree with that idea. Oftentimes, you know, you have these, you're walking or you're, you're doing something you're, and you come up with your idea. Like out of nowhere, you resolve your problem, you know? Um, and why is that? Like, well, you know, because your subconscious is keen on resolving this issue, but it's just, it's just parking it somewhere. Movement seems to be a great way to reorganize, repattern, <laughs> repark this problem you've got. And, but, and it was movement all along that helped you resolve the problem, but we don't recognize that. We think, oh, we solved it. I thought it through. But maybe it was the stroll or the walk or the, you know, the activity with friends, the dance, you know, that just gave your mind a chance to reorganize and come up with a new solution. Like movement's, movement's so integral to problem solving, but doesn't get nearly enough um, attention. Awesome. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Yeah, it was wonderful to see you, my Viking brother. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So good to see you, Damien. Yeah. Take care. Thank you to Damien for so elegantly bridging between the big picture, the philosophy, the theory, the social ramifications of this important research, and then grounding it in his life, in his heart, his body. Thank you to Josie Rothwell for the opening credits and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing credits. Thank you to my Patreons and thank you to my listener for joining me in the return to embodiment.